the bridge financing that a lot of people got into, mm-hmm. they're in hot water because a lot of that debt is coming due. And mm-hmm. since values are dropping, they aren't going to be able to refinance at the price they want. It won't be a cash out refi, but a cash in refi, or they're going to have to sell. Welcome to the First Gen Mastery Podcast, where we empower first-generation immigrants to master the path to abundance and freedom through real estate investing. We are your hosts, Austin Wong and Aman Shahi. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of First Gen Mastery. In today's episode, we have Caleb Johnson, a lead sponsor and also a podcast host, who has acquired over nine millions of real estate before the age of 25. He is also the managing principal of Red Sea Capital, a private real estate company that acquires large value-add apartment buildings. Welcome to the show, Caleb. How are you doing today? Doing well, Austin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Iman. Hey, Caleb. Absolutely a pleasure. So you definitely have a very impressive resume and at a very young age. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story and how it all got started in real estate? Yeah. So I got started, you know, my parents, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Both of my parents, they currently have W-2 jobs and I saw what they had and I knew I did not want that for myself. So it really got exacerbated when my mom was around 60 years old and she had both of her knees replaced and she was an occupational therapist. So she was on her feet for about six hours a day. And, you know, after the surgery, she took some time off to recover. uh, and She was going to live off of her savings for about three months. And then she thought she would be all healed and ready to go. But at the end of that three months, she actually wasn't healed properly in all the way. But she had to go back to work because she could not afford to continue to live off of her savings and retire when she wanted to. So, um, so she would go, so she went back to work and I would see her come home just crying, literally in tears because of so much physical pain of having to be on her legs. And, you know, after that surgery, um, and so that, that really broke my heart. And again, that's when I saw that I knew that I did not want, uh, to experience that when I was at that age. And I also wanted to help her retire early and on time. So that was what really catapulted me in my foundational why of uh, starting my own business. And around the same time, I learned that 90% of millionaires had gotten their millions through real estate. And when I learned that, I thought that was crazy. You know, that 90% of the wealthy had gotten their wealth through this one thing. And those were pretty good odds. So I knew I had to learn more about that. So the question I have, did you start from your career as a W-2 or you straight went to real estate? Mm -hmm. So I started working when I was 15, uh, 15 or 16, and I had been working. um, I left my job when I was 24. So I was still working and having jobs um, while I was starting to invest. I think, yeah, I just want to commend you that the like when asked how you got started in something you really addressed kind of the foundational why and i think that's super important and and i'm very glad that you shared that with us so from that experience that you realize okay i need kind of a different path a different mindset to really making it into real estate can you give us a little bit more details on that did you 
start in single families or what was your very first deal like? Mm -hmm. So I started by learning from bigger pockets and YouTube videos, you know, like HGTV and, and things like that. And bigger pockets, the podcast, it kept on talking about house hacking. And I didn't understand what that was, yeah. but the more I learned about it, you know, it really sounded like it would uh, meet my goals and it kind of fit with what I could do, right? Which is, you know, that, that strategy is moving into a small uh, multifamily property, usually two to four units. You live in one unit, rent out the other three. And since it's owner occupied, you're able to get really favorable terms on your financing, usually like 3% for a down payment. So for me, it was around $12,000. And then I was able to acquire this property. And within about six to 12 months, we were cash flowing about 1000 to 1500 bucks a month. And that was really proof of concept for me. And that property, I really got my hands dirty, literally. It was in a C minus area. So had a lot of fun, uh, exciting stories to, to go along with that. But um, it was just really a blessing to get into that first deal. And then from there, again, I just wanted to ask, okay, how can I do more so I can end up leaving my job and just replace my income? Then how did you get into multifamily after that? Mm -hmm. So I had been investing in residential for about three years. Uh, I sold the fourplex, did a 1031 into a retail facility. And that was more of a JV, um, fairly, I'm a fairly silent partner on that offering. But then I did another house act with a duplex. And I always thought that I would invest in residential for about five years. Mm -hmm. And then I would have enough base experience to level up into commercial because I knew just commercial was where I wanted to go eventually. You know, that's where the big dogs were uh, playing and that's where more money was to be made. So uh, around the three-year mark, I went to this meetup and it was the first apartment complex meetup I had ever been to. And this gentleman um, was speaking who had about $150 million uh, in assets under management. And he shared two things that really changed my mentality. The first was that you're going to be green regardless of when you start investing in commercial real estate. You could have all this experience in residential but you're not going to be able to really implement a lot of that into commercial because it's just two completely different ballparks. Um, the second thing was he shared his first deal with me, which was he acquired this property and after owning it for about four to five years, they sold it and he alone made $2 million. So I did the math, you know, thinking one deal, $2 million in four to five years, there's no way I can do that in residential. And if I really want wealth, yeah. which, you know, wealth, millions of dollars, um, then it's going to be a lot easier to do that in commercial compared to residential. So that's when I knew I had to take more uh, action into commercial. And that's really what propelled me towards that. I can really relate to kind of that mindset change because I also started with a house hack uh, strategy. And yeah, there were definitely a lot of things that uh, went into it that was like interesting stories, right? Like uh, B, uh, B plus markets uh, and a lot of uh, things that you get, uh, get your hands dirty on. And what I see a lot of people go from there is that we either stay to be residential for quite a bit of time until we even can 
have the courage to think about commercial real estate to like what you said now, like, oh, you know what? No matter how long that I stay in residential, it's not going to benefit me a ton in commercial. So can you tell us a little bit about your very first commercial deal and how is that exactly different by residential just to really drive the uh, the point home? Yeah, it's really a lot about valuation. And so a residential property, it's uh, the valuation is dependent upon your comps, right? So whatever your neighbor's house sold for, if yeah. it's identical to your house, that is going to be really close to the value of your property. It could look, you know, really nice on the inside, but really, yeah. I mean, when you get down to it, it's whatever the comps are in your neighborhood. And with commercial, it's more about the NOI. So NOI divided by purchase price gives you the cap rate, and that's how you value a property uh, based off of how much income it's generating. And it's really more operated like a business. You know, there's a lot more systems and processes in place um, for that for you to scale uh, more effectively and easier compared to a single family home portfolio. And not to discount single family homes, there's definitely a time and place for that. And I, I believe in that. Uh, and it's for certain people. Um, and I still invest in single family properties today, but I'm more heavily invested in commercial by far. But my first commercial transaction was uh, an apartment building and besides the retail facility. But the first uh, apartment was a 16 unit property in Oklahoma City. And mm -hmm. the way I found that was mm -hmm. I went to LoopNet and Crexy, which is really a free resource, uh, kind of like the MLS, mm -hmm. but only for commercial yeah. properties. And I called up every yeah. broker. Mm -hmm. I called up every broker that I found on there that was in my market. And I said, hey, I'm looking to buy 20 to 50 unit buildings or whatever, whatever that was, like 10 to 30 units. And I said, do you know anyone that's selling uh, in this unit count? And after a couple of weeks of doing that, I, I called this one broker. And long story short, she said that she did. It was a really great basis to get into. Uh, lots of value add uh, on that offering just with the seller being so far out of touch of the property the management company really kind of nickel and diming him uh, rents being about $200 below market value. And it was again, 16 units. So kind of small, a good property to really get my feet wet in. Yeah. And it was, uh, we were off to the races from there. And uh, just a quick follow up on there. Uh, so before we get into that deal, you mentioned something about NOI and cap rate. And can you explain what those are and what are those numbers like in this deal? Mm -hmm. So NOI is your income minus your expenses before debt service. So uh, it's not cash flow. So yeah. income minus your expenses, and that's what NOI is. And then after that, you subtract debt service, any other you know asset management fees, things like that. And then you have your cash flow. And then cap rate is your NOI divided by your purchase price, and that gives you your cap rate. So generally, a larger cap rate um, means more of a cash flow market, right? There's more NOI per the price of the unit uh, of the building. So that's really kind of how you value a, a commercial property. And uh, if we go back to the property again, did you raise capital for this or did you put your, put your own capital for that? Mm-hmm. So I and how did, had, how did you buy that one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I had about $10,000 that I put into it through EMD, which was fairly low, like $7,000 and then attorney's fees. And that's all I had. So about 10 to $15,000 capital at risk in this deal. And I uh, raised capital uh, for the remaining, you know, 300 grand that we needed to close. And that's a story too, man. Like my first capital raise, it did not go as planned because I, I consider myself a big networker. And I thought I had all these contacts mm-hmm. of people that had money that wanted to invest. And I did have a lot of contacts, but not yeah. a lot of people wanted to invest in me being around maybe 22, 23 years old uh, into my first deal. And a lot of times, you know, they had, uh, they had, they were just tapped out from cash. Some people were going through a divorce. So it was a lot harder to raise capital than I thought. Um, so long story short, after, you know, kind of sweating bullets, um, we did, uh, find, you know, three people that wanted to invest. And so that's a joint venture structure. So they're still, uh, fairly active in that deal, but I, I still do a lot of the, uh, brunt of the work. And, um, in terms of the timeline on this deal, when, when was your first, very first, uh, residential, like when you get into real estate and when was your first commercial? Ooh, um, my first, I think when I first acquired my, the residential property, the fourplex, that was when I was 20 years old. I'm trying to think of the year, maybe it was 20, 2018. I think that's right. And then my first acquisition of the apartment building was in 2022. So it was February, 2022 when we closed on that, uh, apartment complex. Wow. This was quite recent. That's awesome. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so what are you planning on right now? Yeah, you know, we're really seeing a big shift in the market. And that uh, is really uh, because, you know, uh, sellers are still clinging on to 2021 pricing. And with interest rates adjusting, it's just not where we are. And so whenever that happens, there's always a lull in the market, a slowdown in transactions, which is very normal. But we as buyers should get really excited about that right? Because there's going to be a lot of opportunities coming available, especially because of the the bridge financing that a lot of people got into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really are going to, they're in hot water because a lot of that debt is coming due. And mm-hmm. since values are dropping, they aren't going to be able to refinance at the price they want. So they'll have to do a, a re, um, um, it won't be a cash out refi, but a cash in refi, or they're going to have to sell. And they're going to have to sell at a discount, which again is great for us as buyers. Yeah. Of course, we never want to uh, wish harm or, or ill will on anybody, but it is just the market cycle. And so today we're really um, aggressive and still building relationships with brokers and sellers, uh, investigating new markets, emerging markets with great job growth and projected job growth. Mm-hmm. And we're also diversifying into other asset classes, you know, like short-term rentals and even mixed use or student housing. So we really just want to be flexible um, with the state of the market. And uh, what are the markets do you target on? Like what kind of MSAs do you guys target? Mm -hmm. So we're really focused on cash flowing markets, um, red states. Mm -hmm. So we do own uh, a few buildings in New Mexico, which is actually a blue state. But we're still very aggressive in Texas. Um, 
looking at Missouri. We even uh, were looking in Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina, Florida. So we're really looking for projected job growth and, you know, where the jobs are going, where are the people going? And during, you know, the last couple of years, we saw so many people, especially from California, moving to Arizona and Texas. And so that's, Texas was a yeah. great market. And I still believe is a great market because they're so business friendly um, and people are moving there. So um, earlier, I think you touched upon a really good point on the the macro trend of the market and how the bridge loan works that are now kind of almost in a way forcing the market to cool down a little bit now that people are forced to sell. Can you just explain to us about that whole mechanism and how it works in more detail? How exa- What exactly is a bridge loan? And yeah. how does that um, how is, does it, how how is that impacting the market? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So bridge financing is really, let's say you acquire property that's usually in distress. So let's say it has low occupancy that it wouldn't normally qualify for agency debt. Usually that's around 85% occupancy. So let's say you have a seller who's in distress and he hasn't been managing his property well, and it's around 70% occupied and you need uh, your business plan is to go in there, renovate the units uh, and burn off about $200 lost to lease. So you can't get agency mm-hmm. debt. And what you're going to use is bridge financing, which generally is more expensive than agency. But two, three years ago, mm-hmm. I know people that were getting you know $13 million loans for three, 3.2% interest rates and fixed debt. And yeah. so a yeah. lot of people, they... Since the market was so hot, a lot of people just wanted to buy real estate and they got this debt. But with bridge financing, you have a bridge, right? And so so you want to get from point A to point B. And at point B, usually it's about a 36-month term, which is interest only. And so in 36 months after you close the property, you're going to either uh, refinance or sell it because the note is going to come due. And... Again, since you know some people got into this uh, floating rate debt, which is also very constricting on their cash flow. So since there was such uh, an influx of investors and capital and bridge debt acquiring these properties, um, we saw a lot of people just buying properties to buy properties. And so now that the market's shifting, um, they're, they thought that they would be able to refinance. Let's say they bought it for $1 million, and they thought in two years, they're going to be able to refinance the property for $3 million. But now, let's say they're getting close to that term ending. So, and the property is only worth $2.5 million. So, what are they going to do? They could either go do a capital call and ask the partners and the limited partners, hey, we need another half a million dollars to be able to just finance and get new debt. Or they're going to have to sell you know, at a, and maybe some people will be okay with that uh, financially, or, or some people might be underwater. And so that's kind of um, where we're, what I'm seeing uh, on the horizon. So how are you changing the strategy at this point? Because every single investor, they're holding their money just to wait for a change in the market so they can just jump on it. Like they're waiting for the interest rate to come down make the market stable so they can jump in. So how are you changing the strategy? 
Mm-hmm. So we want to get fixed debt and uh, don't do bridge. <laughs> bridge financing is so expensive right now. It's like eight, 9% yeah. depending on the asset and the market. Um, but getting fixed rent and uh, fixed debt and buying properties that we're able to get, you know, agency financing on. Um, so we aren't in those terms, they're five, seven, 10 years out. You know, Jake and Gino, they're a huge component of that where they get really long-term debt, usually five, sometimes even 10 years where it's fixed. Mm-hmm. And no matter what happens, they can hold that property with that debt for 10 years before they need to exit or think about refinancing. So those are the the properties that we're really acquiring and taking consideration in because, you know, there's just so much uncertainty and the investors, our limited partners really like that too, right? They want to see some more security and just know that we aren't getting into a deal just for a deal. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. I love that. That's actually a really good explanation, especially when you compare kind of the bridge, how when you see how bridge loan works and you see how agency loan works, which is uh, your Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans that are kind of more long-term and with a lower uh, interest rate, but at the same time that requires the property to be more operational rather than distressed. So it really depends on your strategy and your loan type. You can get squeezed pretty badly when interest rate goes up, when you have a variable interest rate product under your belt. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Mark. And I just want to say, like, you know, you won't believe people in Canada, they are even buying their primary homes with the very variable debt. They don't have fixed debt. To get that, you have to pay extra. Wow. And they had they bought homes like with three percent, now their debt is like twelve percent. And they cannot afford it because they bought the variable. Mm-hmm. Even for their primary homes, not the investments. Oh. Sounds like opportunity, <laughs> man. <laughs> That's <crazy. laughs> Could be, yeah. So, uh, looking at kind of the long term of your future investment journey, where do you think you're going? What are your goals? Mm-hmm. So you know, so it, it's a real challenge to I found to make let's say a five year goal because in six months it usually changes. Um, and I actually had written down um, on my paper here on my wall that I taped up there, uh, like in five years to have 3000 units, uh, something like that. And mm-hmm. that's changed since the last six months. But we really, you know, seeing the shift in the market has really made me think and understand that I've had this box and it was the apartment box mm-hmm. where I just wanted to do apartments. And I think that's really that's really good whenever you're starting something new is to get dialed in, focused, and that's what you're doing, right? But now we're seeing the shift in the market where my ultimate goal is not to buy apartments. It's to cash flow and have mm-hmm. a passive income coming in. So if apartments aren't yeah. getting me there, then I need to know what my ultimate goal is and just seek opportunities that are going to give me that. So we're pursuing short-term rentals currently. Um, again, we're also looking at different asset classes like mixed use or student housing. And really just, we want to be opportunistic. You know, I, I read a book, um, am I being too subtle by Sam Zell? And whenever someone asks, I, I him, read that too. Yeah. Great book. The guy's a billionaire. Um, yeah. but whenever people ask him what he does for work, he says, Oh, I'm an opportunist. So whenever opportunity comes yeah. to him, he just jumps on it. 
And that's what we, we really want to be yeah. uh, right now. You know, we still are very aggressive in apartments, but we're also looking at other opportunities and just really want to be open and, and be opportunistic for those opportunities. Got it. Got it. Got it. So the last question I'm going to ask you, just be ready for it. So if today is your last day on this planet, what message do you want to give to the world? Man, um, I love that question, brother. Anything. I, yeah, I would say, you know, seek Christ in everything you do. And you can't take anything with you that is on this earth. It's all dust. The only thing that we can take with ourselves is relationships. And so that, um, yeah, that would be it. Oh, that's, I love that. I love that. Wow. That's a very short, but very powerful message. And that's really um, one of the main reasons that this podcast was created as well is, is yes, it's value delivering, but it's also really relationship building, right? And I've talked to so many of my listeners personally about what where we can improve on, like what we do, what uh, how we can create value for you. Um, and that type of conversation really drives me going every single day. Um, so Caleb, thank you so much for being on the show. And before we wrap this up, where can people go out and find out more about you? Mm -hmm. Well, they can tune into our podcast, uh, from trial to triumph, or they can, uh, look us up at redccapitalgroup.com. All right, man. And thank you so much for your time. And it was great. And we'll see you another one. Cool. Thanks guys for having me. All right. We'll see you in another one, Caleb. That's it for this episode of First Gen Mastery. Tune in next week for more insights, inspirations, and actionable tips to help you master your path to abundance and freedom. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.